start with something really profound. Are you ready? You have to listen up. You can only be you. Let me say it again because some of you didn't catch it. You can only be you. So why are you trying to be somebody you're not? How come we take role models or people around us or celebrities or um, even culture, we take Um, different people from different uh, music types or sports arenas or different things, and we suddenly end up being that person instead of God, who God created us to be. How come people will dress like everyone else when they're not even comfortable with what they're wearing? How come people allow society to dictate the way that they look on the outside. And even more damaging is they let people decide what they look like on the inside. I'm here to tell you today that you can only be you. And some of you today in this room are miserable because you've spent your entire life living someone else's dreams, trying to be someone you're not, And you're frustrated because you can't quite reach the plateau of what you think you want to be because you're trying to get somewhere that God never intended for you to get. I think one of the most startling scriptures in all of the Bible is found in Matthew 7 at the end when Jesus tells some people who were in church, these were church people, he stands, they stand before Jesus, and Jesus said, depart from me, I don't even know who you are. And they said, but we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did all these good church things, and Jesus said, depart from me, you that work lawlessness. I think those are startling scriptures, because what it means is, even well-intended church people that are doing church work end up, God doesn't even know who they are, because they've lived a life that God never told them to live. Some people are trying to be a prophet, and they're not a prophet. Some people are trying to be a preacher, and they're not a preacher. Some people are trying to be a teacher, they're not a teacher. And some people are trying to be something they're not. And God says, you can only be you, and you need to be okay with who you are and who you can be. Amen. But there's nothing wrong with wanting to be the best you that you can be. And that's what today's message is about. You being the best you that you can be. And I just guarantee you something right here. I'm going to make a guarantee. I don't do this very often. That if you only try to live the life as you, this life as you, and if you only try to be who God created you to be, 
your self-confidence will soar. And some of you need a dose of good, healthy self-confidence. Some of you are working a job way beneath what you are supposed to be working because you don't have the confidence to go out and get what God says you're supposed to get. And if you live as God created you to live, you, your self-confidence will soar. Your self-hatred will disappear. Because the only reason you find yourself hating yourself is because you so miss the mark on what you think you should be. And sometimes that's not even what God wanted you to be. Some of you have this idea of what a Christian is or this Christian moral code that you can't seem to measure up to. All these rules that you can't seem to get and you sit there and look in the mirror and hate yourself because you feel like a failure in your faith when God says you're not. Self-condemnation will vanish if you just live to be you. And I'll tell you a big one. If you're just trying to be the best you that you can be, depression will lift. I believe that all these negative feelings I just described are the result of people trying to be somebody that God never intended for them to be. I want to be me but I want to be the best version of me that I can be. There's nothing wrong with me holding myself to a standard that I feel that God has placed in my heart for me. I'm not into big introspection. I'm not into you looking under every rock to see what's wrong in your life. I'm not one of those people, but I can tell you this. There's a standard. There's a mold, a, a pattern that God designed to us, me, you, everyone individually to be, and we line up against that pattern only. Somewhere in, in eternity, God created a pattern, and there was only one of me made, and that pattern is the only thing that I aspire to be. But because I'm human, and because I'm pulled to and fro by different things here and there, inside, outside, as I grow up, different things, rejections, all kinds of things happen. I end up moving away from the pattern God designed me to be, and I try to live like somebody else or try to impress other people in other arenas. So I end up doing things that compromise who I really am. I want to be the best version of me possible. Courtney, put up a picture of you and me. <laughs> Courtney put this up in Facebook. This is uh, Courtney Scott, and uh, used to be Courtney Hadley, and I've known her all her life since she was five. I used to change her diapers when she was five. Now, <laughs> she was a little slow. No, I'm kidding. I always tell her that. But, you know, we've been friends for a long, long time, and Courtney's like a daughter to me. And I won't tell you how old she is now, but she's pretty old. And uh, <laughs> that's me and her at uh, my son's wedding the other night. And she took that picture. And then I happened to have this picture at my house. And I thought it was so odd because it's exactly the same picture, but it's 15 years apart. <laughs> and uh, I looked at it and I thought, man, I used to be a lot better looking than I was today. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, <laughs> thank you, Mitch. I thought you were in security. Where is he today? Um, 
But here, here's the thing that, that, you know, Courtney wrote back and said, hey, we still don't look too bad for 15 years later. And I wrote, you know, you don't, but I'm fading fast. <laughs> and I meant it. I thought, man, my best days are behind me. I actually thought that in my mind. My best days are behind me that I'm now 61 years old and, you know, I'm getting older. You can pull it down now. <laughs> oh, it's going to leave it up. Okay. But let me just say this. My best days are not behind me. And your best days are not behind you. I think that's a trap. I think that's a trap that the enemy has tried to push into our culture. That if we're not young, beautiful, that we're not going to have the best life. I want to be me. And you know what? I happen to be 61 years old, but I want to be the best 61-year-old me that I can possibly be. And here's the good news. God says that that's all I have to be. And also, it's wrong for me to say my best years are behind me because if I truly believe God has a future and a hope for me, then my best days are in front of me and I have everything I need to succeed as me in the next gener this next season of life. Now, let me put that over on you. you. You may have a lot of reasons that you believe your best days are behind you. But I'll tell you, that's a lie for you as well. God has given you everything. It's inside of you. Everything you need to be the best version of you, no matter what season of life you're in, you are preparing. You're prepared right now by God. If you will just believe that God really wants to bring something out of you that's amazing because that amazing thing is your unique individual individuality. You are wonderfully and uniquely made by God. And you can be you at any age of your life. There's a guy named C.G. Young, and he was a Swiss uh, psychiatrist, and he was brilliant. They actually attribute the beginnings of AA through his influence. I won't go into all that story, but this is a brilliant man. But he had this quote, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. I love that. And sometimes it takes a lifetime. Sometimes, you know, even at 61 years old, there's so much self-discovery going on inside of my self that I'm, I'm finding out things about myself or things that, you know, I thought, oh, I was supposed to be doing that. And then God says, no, you're not. I never called you to do that. that there's a lifetime of things with God that will begin to show me who I truly am. But we're looking in the book of Esther. Let's start. Let's go back to Esther chapter 1. Our story last week in Esther was uh, the story of a king, and we know the king represents God, and he has a vast kingdom, and he has a queen. Vashti is her name. And the king is having a lavish banquet, and Vashti's having a banquet in another place, and the king summons Vashti to come. It's like God calling you to come to him. God always extends an invitation to people because he loves us so much. But God is not a controlling God. He doesn't make people do anything. He gives us self-will. He gives us a, a will to do 
whatever we want to do. He gives us free choice. He doesn't just make you do anything. That's the reason when God comes and fills you up with his spirit, one of the things he gives you is self-control. People talk about all the time, God, take control so that I don't make a mistake. Take control of me so I can break this habit. God will never do that. God will only give you himself so you can have self-control, so you can make choices that are good for you. So he extended this call to Vashti, and we know we left it last week that Vashti said, no, I'm not going to come for whatever reason. And we talked about a bunch of it last week. She wouldn't come, and the king was furious, and that's where we left the story last week. So we pick it up in verse 15, and the question is then ask, well, what are we going to do with Queen Vashti? You know, what's the penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders and properly that's sent through the eunuchs? It means if God gives a call to his people and they don't respond, you know, what are we going to do about it? Now, this is where you're going to have to um, understand that the Bible's not literal. When I begin to speak about these things that happen in the next few verses, you can't go, oh, well, God will treat me that way. No, he, he, he never leaves you or forsakes you. He wants you. He constantly extends his call. But the, but the lesson, the parallel lesson of this scripture is so beautiful because Queen Vashti is invited and she refuses. And then the king says, now what are we going to do? And in verse 19, it came up with the idea through counsel and everything. The king said that that we suggest you issue a written decree in verse 19, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked, and it should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. Now, when you hear that, you think, well, if I don't do what God wants, he's just going to kick me out. No, he's not. He's going to give you chance after chance after chance. But I'll tell you this, he will invite you to always come to him and he wants you to come where he is. Some of you are always wanting God to come with you, but the truth is he's been calling you to come with him. And so when you don't answer that invitation to, to sometimes even change location or change habits, change things that separate you from God, when God extends a call to you and you say, no, God, I just, I'm too, it's kind of like Lyndall said about you follow God into the unknown, and it's a little scary, and I think we've all been there. But when God extends an invitation to us, and we say, no, we're a little afraid, we're not going to do that, we're not going to come, God's still here, and he's still extending the call. But if you don't come, there's a separation. There's a separation, and that separation is your choice. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? God didn't kick you to the curb. He wants you to be with him. He's asking you to be with him. And so, some people say that this is, this is just for people that study the Bible, you know, that, um, you know, I've, I've, I've taught before that there's always two, there's always the church in Israel and and even in this story, you do see things, and people have used this verse about Vashti to, to um, prove that there's replacement theology or that the church replaced Israel, and that's not true. It's just that I, I believe that it is about the two things that, 
that God had a love and he wanted that love to be towards Israel. And it says that Israel continually would not answer God's call. In fact, in Jeremiah 3, 7 and 8, it's, an, it's a weird scripture. But it says that God extended a call for Israel to return to him. Put up 3, 7 and 8, Jeremiah 3, 7 and 8. It says, after, it says, return to me. God calling Israel, return to me. But she did not return. And then in verse 8, it blows your mind. Then I saw that for all the causes for the backsliding of Israel had committed adultery, and I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear but went and played the harlot also. The, the, these scriptures are difficult to understand, but they're about God's heart. He so loves his bride, and when she continually plays the harlot, he, 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 he lets her. But in the book of Hosea that follows this, the book of Hosea is a, a parable that talks about how God, yes, he divorced his wife, but he went back and bought her out of slavery time and time again because God's heart is to be with us. He wants us, but we are the ones that have the wayward heart. We are the ones that refuse to answer the call. We're the ones that harden our hearts so many times to God's wooing and God's love, and we don't, we don't answer that, that love that God wants to, to just pour out on us. And he won't force you. He just invites you. So we see that picture unfolding here with Queen Vashti. And so it says in chapter 2, as we continue on with the story of Esther, that the king woke up one day and he missed his queen. He had banished Vashti and he missed her. And so his personal attendants noticed that he missed her. In verse 2 it says, Let us search the empire and find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents to each province and bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. And then Haggai the, Haggai, the king's eunuch, in charge of the harem, will see that they're given beauty treatments, and after that the, young woman, the, the young woman that pleases the king the most can be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Now here's the picture. And this is a, this is a real story that's verifiable by records in the, in the uh, Persian uh, uh, history that they recorded. These, these things really happened that they would go out into all the kingdom. And we know it was a vast kingdom from India all the way to Africa. It was a huge kingdom. And they sent out dignitaries into this, these villages. And, and here were these girls. And I can tell you this, these girls were probably about 14, 15 at the most. They were very young girls. Number one, it says they were young about three times. And number two, they're virgins. And at this day and age, they married these girls off early. So these girls were young girls. And they were at home working on the farm because it was probably mostly a farming society. So these dignitaries are going out onto these farms and going into these little villages. And, and these girls that are working every day, you know, cutting wood or milking cows or sewing clothes or whatever they had to do, you know, they, they certainly didn't sit around. They were working like dogs in these, in these houses that they were in. The king's uh, uh, dignitaries would come into their villages. It would be like the biggest thing going on. These people would be going, look, this is, this is somebody, you know. And this dignitary would come into the village, and he would have everybody line up, all their people. They would just all line up. And then he would go down the line, and he would, he would probably, you know, look at them, look at their hair, look at their teeth, everything. He would, he would go down and just like shopping, and he would say, you're going with us. 
And that right in that moment, that girl, little girl, 14, 15, whatever she was, had to go, okay. And they put her in the carriage or whatever they did. And she suddenly began a life that was amazing compared to what she was before. Simply because she was beautiful, simply because she was a choice of the king through a dignitary, this little child who probably had dirty hands and a dirty face and raggedy clothes was suddenly, just because she was, had the core of beauty, they could see through all the dirt, they could see through the messed up hair, and they thought, that girl's beautiful. Take her. And it's kind of like a, a reality show. It's kind of like The Voice or something. You know, they probably had them all over the kingdom, thousands of girls. And they probably brought them to a central location. And they probably cleaned them up and dressed them in decent clothes. And they probably lined them up again. And then they probably had a more direct contact with the king dignitary come, someone that really knew the king's taste, and went through and probably selected, I don't know, maybe one out of four. And the rest of them probably were released to go back home, but they probably got something for their time. They probably got the clothes they were wearing. They probably really enjoyed the food they'd been eating for the last few days, things that they had never eaten in their lives. They didn't have to work a day. They didn't want their hands all rough. They didn't want their face out in the sun. They didn't want, they want these girls to be perfect. So these girls really usually enjoyed this time. But then there was another group, and they were taken into Susa, into the fortified palace. They went into this palace, something they had never seen in their life. All these girls going into this palace. I mean, all the beauty and all the pomp and all the money and the people. It was, it was amazing for these girls, these little country girls. They were coming in, and, and, and they thought, man, we're special. And everyone was treating them special. These girls could potentially be their queen, one of them. So they were treated special from the time they went into the city. And they came in, and, and, and then they brought them into the harem. And a harem has a negative word for us, but a harem is literally just a place where the king kept his wives and his concubines. If we remember King Solomon, he was a very wealthy king, and he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women, not counting attendants, we know, and we're going to read in a minute, that Esther got seven attendants. So these harems were not like a little, you know, hut off behind the house. They were giant castles in themselves, housing up to 7,000 people probably in some cases. These were massive structures. So these girls were brought in. They were dressed in clothes they had never seen in their life. They were given food they had never even knew existed. They were given treatment after treatment. In fact, it says they brought them in, and they began to give them these treatments. So it says as they brought them into Susha, we get introduced to another character, and it's Mordecai. This guy, Mordecai, he comes up in, in verse uh, 5. It says he was a Benjamite, which means he was a Jew. Mordecai was a Jew, and he was living in the castle of the king. And Mordecai probably was a eunuch probably was a servant in the church. Now, you know, I mean, in the castle. So Mordecai was a person that had been physically altered so that he had no drive. We have a family Sunday, so we're going to say this. So his family had been among those that King uh, Jehoiakim of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is an interesting fact, and I'm just throwing this out for FYI, but this book was probably written in 475 B.C. They know that from 
the history that, that surrounds it. And the Jewish captivity was from 586, 587 BC for 70 years. So at about 516, 517, the Jews went back to Jerusalem after the exile. They were only exiled 70 years. So we know that these were some Jews that had chosen to stay in this region. And there were lots of Jews that chose to stay because the unknown going back to Jerusalem wasn't near as good for them as the known that they had already established a life in Babylon. And so we know that Mordecai was one of those people. He may have stayed because he was a servant of the king and he was a servant in the castle. Who knows? But this man had a very beautiful, Mordecai had a very beautiful and lovely cousin named Hadassah, who was also called Esther. And her father and her mother died, and Mordecai, her cousin, her older cousin, adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther was among those other young women that was brought into the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther, and he treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen for the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anybody her nationality or family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem just to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So we get a picture here that whenever these women went into the harem, they were totally segregated. They were totally isolated from the rest of the world. Nobody ever saw them. Nobody ever got to talk to them except the king and a few of his attendants. But they were a very protected area. But Mordecai, being a, a eunuch probably in the castle, was one that had free reign. And he was able just to walk over by the harem and kind of through the fence, so to speak. He would hear what's going on. Hey, Esther, how you doing? They treating you good? Is it going well? And that's what he was doing, checking on her, because he loved her as a daughter. Verse 12, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months. There again, exaggerated number, which means it took a long time for some of these girls who had been very rough out in the, on the farm to get fixed up and to be old enough to come into the king. This is something that was a process that started, and I'm sure that a lot of girls got halfway through the process, and they were probably expelled from the program because they figured out your best is not good enough. So this, again, was another probably elimination process. It says they were prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil, six months with myrrh, followed with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take. Now, this is pretty cool because the story here is that these girls who had nothing, they were probably all poor when they came, they got a chance to go into the king's treasury and pick out clothes that were like in nothing they'd ever seen and jewelry like was very valuable, which they had nothing. And the temptation, they could have whatever they want. Just dress up whatever you want. Take whatever you want. And many of these girls, I'm sure, took advantage and said, well, I want this, and I need a bracelet on this hand, a bracelet here, and ankle bracelets, and earrings, and necklace. I mean, you would do the same thing. I mean, I'm going to get some stuff here. And they probably looked very made up when they left that little chamber. Anyway, they were able to take this stuff. And that evening, 
that the girl was taken to the king's private rooms. The next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. So you get the picture. There were two harems. There was a preparation harem, and there was a place where the girls lived after they had been with the king. It says here that they never got to see the king again unless he was especially, that he had especially enjoyed her, and he requested her by name. So many of these hundreds of girls, maybe even thousands, were brought to the king, and if the king never wanted to talk, if they, if they didn't make an impression enough that he knew their name and asked for them again, they would spend their whole life in isolation in the harem. They would live and die as the king's wife or concubine and maybe never see the king again. This is mind-blowing for us, but let me tell you what it was for them. For these girls... Being chosen to do this was like winning the lottery. Because all, it, all these girls knew before they got swept up in this craziness was that they were sitting there living on the farm thinking, I wonder who mom and dad are going to pick out for me to marry. I wonder if it's old Billy Bob down at the blacksmith shop, you know, that's got one eye and he's about 40 years old. But he, he's a hardworking man and, and, you know, he's wanting to have a few kids. You know, maybe, maybe it's the stable boy, you know. I really think he's good looking, but it probably won't be because he doesn't have any means to pay a dowry for me, so it probably is going to be his dad. These girls many times were married off to much older men that could afford to pay the parents something for them. So when a girl got this, you talk about winning the lottery. We think this would be disgusting to do this, but in this generation, it was winning the lottery. So she would go in. So when it was Esther's turn, we know the story. She went in, and in verse 15, she went in and she only accepted the advice of the person who had been taking care of her, the eunuch Haggai that had been taking care of her that was so impressed with Esther. When she went in to pick out clothes and she went in to pick out jewelry, she said, what do you think? And Haggai says, well, the king loves blue, and the king doesn't like too much makeup, and the king likes pearls, he doesn't like diamonds, and she took just what he suggested. And she dressed, and we know the story, she went into the king, and he was smitten. And this is the seventh year of his reign, it says in verse 16. Why is that relevant? Because the story started in the third year of his reign, so we've covered, in a chapter and a half, we've covered four years. Esther was probably in this process. This, this whole process was taking years. So Esther came in, and he loved her more than any other woman. He delighted in her so much that in that moment, it kind of sounds like, he crowned her queen. He goes, you're not going anywhere. You're my queen. <laughs> we don't need to go to anybody else. You're it. And she was queen. So then he gives a great banquet, and he gives generous gifts to everyone. It's so funny how this king that represents God is always throwing a party and he's always given gifts. He's so generous and he loves parties and he loves to be happy. And even after the, all the young men, women had been transferred to the second harem, Mordecai had, a, had become a palace official. Esther continued to keep her family background secret. She was still following Mordecai's direction just as she did when she lived in his home. So why did I tell that big long story? Because that big long story has some tremendous truth about you being the best you that you can be. Because Esther's story parallels our story, even though we don't see it. 
You see, for you to be the best you that you can be, you have to answer the invitation of the king and come into his presence, into his intimacy with him before you can be the best you you can be. You will never find your best you anywhere but in the presence of God because he created you to be you. You can't find out who you are talking to your parents or your best friend or your wife or anyone else. You can only find out who you are in the presence of God. So you have to answer the call. You, it's an invitation. And some of you have been resisting the invitation of God for years. You, you know about Jesus, you know, but you've, it's just head knowledge. You've never been in the presence of the king, which is quite different. Everybody knew who the king was. And some of these girls even got invited, but they never made it into his court. They never made it into his room. Like so many people in the kingdom of God, they, they hear about it, they kind of are interested in it, and they sort of dabble in it, but they never quite accept the invitation, and it comes straight into the presence of God. Jesus came so God could be with us. Jesus came so he could be with you. Not so you could know about him, so he could be with you. You know, Esther was brought into the harem. But you know, I'll just say this. She was not made to be one of a group in the harem. She was not made to be one of the group. She was made to be queen. Now, a lot of these girls probably were thrilled just to be in the group. They were thrilled just to make it that far and know that if I go into the second harem, I never have to milk another cow. I never have to go out and get water. I never have to go chop wood. I mean, this is the life. I sit in there and these people bring me food and I'm just, all I have to do is stay beautiful. What a life. But you see, some people were satisfied with that, but Esther knew that she was made to be queen. Esther wasn't made to be part of the group. Now listen to me. Before you can be a good individual, you're going to have to stop letting the group define who you are. Many of you, many of you are satisfied with just being in the group. You're satisfied that just your group accepts you and you're somebody in the group. You'll never be who you were created to be by being successful in just a group. Are you hearing me? The devil can spend so much time trying to drag us into groups. Now, I'm not talking about unity. Don't misunderstand me. But some of you are alcoholics. And you identified with a group. And you continue to identify with a group of alcoholics. And there's a level of identity in that. But you're going to have to not find your identity in the group. You need to find your identity through God. One of the things that's wrong with our country, now I don't get political ever, but I'm going to just say this because I believe it with all my heart. You know, John Kennedy had a great speech. He said, it's not what, ask not what you, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Now, <clears throat> that was a great speech, and it's a great, it's a great statement, but it's really contrary to the idea of what this country was founded on. 
This country was founded on strong individuality and we choose to be joined because we want, to com we want a common bond of a nation of United States, of a nation of united individuals. Not because we're all the same, but because we're all united around the idea of having a country. That's the reason we have a country that has a president that can look any number of ways. Do you ever notice, do you ever look at leaders of other nations, whenever Miss Park came from Korea, did you expect her to be black? No, you expected her to be a Korean woman, and that's what she was. Whenever Vladimir Putin shows up in Syria, do you expect him to be uh, Hispanic? No, he's Russian. He looks Russian. He is Russian. They've never had anybody but a Russian. Our president, our leaders, can look like anybody. Do you know why? Because we're a nation of individuals joined together through common cause. We choose to have representatives go to Washington that represent our individuality of our nation, of our regions, and we're a, we're, a, uh, we're a republic. We're not, we're not one big homogenized society. We're individuals. And I believe that because we've identified with groups, we've lost our individuality and we've lost our identity of who we are in Christ. Let me tell you another big one. Churches cause you to lose your identity because they're pulling you into, you can't, if you don't agree with me, if you don't join me, and what they're saying is, if you don't come to this agreement of the group, you can't be with us. I want to say this. I'm proud of the fact that we have every kind of person in the world in here, and there's all kinds of individuals, and I'm not trying to change you from what you believe. Because I want you to be a strong individual that reads this, that prays to your God, and God establishes theology in your heart, and you come to me and we can reason together. We can talk together. But I in no way will try to unravel what you believe. Because I want you strong in who you are. That's, that's the beauty of God. The group has caused us to lose our identity, therefore we've lost who we are in Christ. I mean, religion's the worst one. Just this week, this, this church up in, where was it? Up New Jersey, where they beat this teenager to death in this church. And I was reading that story. It was just making me sick. This little boy, he wanted to leave the church. And they sat there and beat this kid, trying to get him to confess his sin until he died. And then when they were interviewing the parents after they arrested everybody, they said, what kind of craziness is this? The parents said, well, we, we felt bad. We didn't want to keep beating him, but everybody said that was the right thing to do. Do you see the damage that is caused when we just allow the group to identify who we are? You need to be you. You don't need anybody else telling you what to believe or how to believe. You need to know what you believe, and it needs to be yours. You're smart enough, and the Spirit of God that lives in me lives in you, and you can hear him from him directly. Yes, Esther wasn't made to be the harem. She was made to be queen. You know, I'm, I'm a preacher, and, and I, I fall into this. I, this is why I know it's so true, is I fall into that trap of being, I'm a preacher, so I'm in the preacher group. I find myself measuring myself against other preachers, you know, 
And, and then I read what other preachers write, like a Brennan Manning, and I think, oh, Lord, I would be so much more successful if I could craft words like Brennan Manning. If I had that vocabulary and that, that unbelievable brain. And I find myself feeling bad. I find myself a little self-hatred, a little self-condemnation, even a little depression because I feel less than. Because in the preacher group, I've allowed the group to set a bar that God never set for me. You see how it works. And it's deceptive and it's damaging. And one of the things wrong in the church today is we have a lot of sheep that are following other sheep. And we're not really following the true shepherd because we're just following the sheep. We're just keeping our nose in someone else's and following right along. Sorry. I didn't get that out of my preacher analogy book. (laughs) Okay, how are we doing? Everybody good? Okay. We'll wind this up in a minute. You know, Esther was created for a specific purpose. It took a long time. It said four years for God to set the stage. Um, You know, here's one thing I want to say to you is that sometimes you get frustrated in life and you feel like life is kind of at a standstill. And I want to say something that your life is a lot of times God is just setting the stage for you to unfold into what God's created you to be. And it takes a long time sometimes for God to get you where he hopes you'll be. You see, it says in the word of God that God has a future and a hope for every one of us. And our future is not failure. Your future is a future. means a successful, abundant life future. You say, well, my best years are behind me. I go back to the previous point in my sermon. They're not behind you. They're in front of you. You have everything you need right now to be the best you you can be and to live the life God created you to live. And God says he wants you to have hope for your future. That's where faith comes in. Some of you, your lives are not great right now. I understand that. But God wants you to have a hope. He wants you to have a future and a hope. You know, here here was Esther. It seemed like, you know, not only was she probably a very poor child, her parents died. And many times orphans in those days lived on the street unless somebody was just nice enough to take them in. And her cousin took her in and took care of her. She must have felt like life was really against her. She must have felt like that. But you see, God had to set the stage for Esther. And even though her life seemed to be painful in unraveling, God was setting a stage four years before. Esther was probably 10 or 11 when this whole thing started with Vashti. And God already knew she would be the queen. She was playing with little wooden Barbie dolls. But God already knew she would be queen. And he set the stage Some of you guys are already preordained by God to be something great, and you just are wondering when anybody's going to notice it. (laughs) The truth is, God's been setting the stage. There's a process. Sometimes people die in our life. Sometimes people leave in our life. Sometimes relationships have to change. Sometimes getting fired is the biggest blessing you ever got, because what it did is it removed you from where you weren't supposed to be, and it put you on the path to where you're supposed to be. God wants to bless you and give you a future and a hope. And he is setting the stage. 
but it comes through preparation, 12 months of treatments. It's a long process. It takes a long time sometimes for us to go through the process to become who God wants us to be. When those girls came in, they were all, the nails were probably all scraggly and dirty and everything. They were in there scrubbing them up. And all these seven girls were fixing hair and combing hair and cleaning out ears and trimming up hair and shaving these girls up and getting them all cleaned up. They were, I mean, they were really making these girls presentable. They, some of them probably looked horrible when they came in, you know? But when they came out, it was like the ultimate makeover. And you're talking about this went on for a year. I want to say this. When you come to God, sometimes you immediately want to be king of the world. Sometimes you want to go out and start a ministry. But you know, there's some things that probably need to be scrubbed off of you. There's a Holy Spirit bubble bath going on and you need to be in it. And don't be like the dog and keep jumping out. You got to get in it. Stay in it. Stay in it until God says you're ready to go to the, to the place you're supposed to be. And he'll be scrubbing you up. You know, that, that bitterness and anger that's been in you since you were a child. He's got he's to scrub that out of you. He's got to treat you with the oil of the Spirit of God. He's got to get you ready. You know, some of you have, have left a stench in the world because of your testimony of your last life. Sometimes it takes a while for God to treat you to a place where you become a fragrance instead of a stench. You can't get mad at everybody and walk out and go, I've changed. When did you change? Two days ago. Now... Sometimes it takes some time in the world to not stink to the rest of the world. God can see your beauty, but the world can't. And for you to be effective in the world, you've got to be accepted by the world. And it's a process, and it takes time. Some of you keep hopping out of the tub, and God's saying, get in, stay put until we're through. And it's in the presence of God that he makes you the best. I love Matthew 13, 44. It says that God searches the whole world over. It's, it's the field. Go, Courtney put it up, 13, 44. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, and the man found and hid, and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I just want to say this. This is how God feels about us. He went and purchased the world through the sin. The, he took all the sins of the world through Jesus' blood. He purchased the world because he saw hidden treasure in me. He, but I have to stay put long enough for that treasure to emerge. God sees it, but no one else does, and it takes a while of God kind of working in me and on me to be able to have that treasure come out in the world. God sees it. He saw it. He, he purchased me long before I deserved it. I, don't, I still don't deserve it. But he saw something in me. And then the process began. Proverbs eleven twenty two, one of my favorite verses. As a gold ring in the swine's snout, so is a lovely woman that lacks discretion. I love that verse. What does it mean? It means a golden ring is beautiful. But when it's in a pig's nose, it's not beautiful. Just like a beautiful woman can be beautiful, but if she lacks discretion, she's not beautiful. And so a lot of these girls, they came into the harem, and they lacked discretion. They lacked it, and they weren't beautiful. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how long your hair is and how pretty you are. You're not beautiful until you get some discretion. And it takes a little while to learn from people that can teach us. That's why church is so important, to be around people that can help us to learn, help us to know, help us to, to become who God created us to be. 
He's preparing us for life. Abundant life with the king is the goal. It was for Esther. It is for you. Unless you're just made to be a part of the group. And I don't believe we are, have a church that's made to be a part of the group. I see too many of you in action. I can tell you what. We got a lot of shakers and movers and world changers. But the deal is you're never going to do it until you find out who you are. And you need to be prepared for the abundant life with the king because that's where your true identity is going to emerge. Let me explain it like this. Put up that quote, Court, about the question. The, the, the answer to the question of who am I isn't found in self-evaluation or comparison. Now, now think about it. It's found in commitment to the process of trusting Jesus with every aspect of who we are. Letting the Holy Spirit make us ready by making us a new creation, resting in God's plan for our lives. So many people think they can improve themselves by looking inside, and that's not the place you're going to find it. You're going to find it in the presence of God. Letting the Spirit make you ready. And it's all about choices. The only thing that you control in life is your choices. You don't control anybody. You, don't, you can't control anything. The only thing you can control is your choices. And so your choice is, are you going to let God clean you? Like it says in Ephesians 5, that he gave his life for her, which is his bride. Put that up, Ephesians 5, court 25 through 27. For Pull that down. Pull that down. That's not right. I didn't write it. I'll just, quote, I'll just read it. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed her by the cleansing of God's word, and he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. You see, God is the one that does the cleansing. You can't clean yourself up. This is a fallacy. You can't do it. You can't clean. This is not a message that says work harder, try harder, get cleaned up. That's not what this is about. It's about the only choice that you make is to remain in Jesus. The word and prayer and meditation in the word are essential. These are choices that we make to stay in Christ. It's through the cleansing of the word that God gets us ready and gets us ready before it hit the king. It's like, the, it's the same story as an Esther. She was brought in and she needed to be cleaned up, but it's the washing of the water of the word. These girls didn't know how to clean up. They didn't know how to dress. They didn't know what any, they didn't know anything. Just like you don't know anything. You come to Christ and you don't know anything. You don't know who you're supposed to be. You don't know what's good, bad, ugly. You don't know. Don't let someone tell you there's some list of things you've got to do before God will accept you. That's ridiculous. You come to God just as you are, just like Esther did, you know, probably dirty and hairy and messed up and goofy and whatever. She's just standing there. 
But God saw her beauty, and God knew how to make her beautiful, and God said, submit to these treatments. Stay in the presence of me, and in that presence, I'm going to make you the person God created you to be. And you become beautiful, and whenever you become beautiful, then God's going to release you into the purpose that you... You'll be growing into your purpose. Esther was so wise. She didn't waste her time. She didn't get frustrated that it took so long. She made friends with the people around her. She grew in the favor of men while she was getting right and getting cleaned up. She didn't get mad that they were scrubbing her so hard. She didn't get mad that it was taking so long. She didn't get frustrated with the process. She didn't get frustrated with the people around her. She made friends and she gained favor wherever she went because that's what God wants us to do. That's how it works. You have to grow in favor with God and man. If you think it's just with God, you can stay home all day, right? You know, I'm good with the man upstairs. There's all those other people I can't get along with. Well, that's great. But you're never going to be who God created you to be until you can get along with both. You've got to grow in favor with God and with man, just like Esther did. So when he says the time is right, then you know that you're humble enough to say, what do you think? What do you think? And people can speak into your life like they did Esther. People can help you in life. People can help you walk through it. Get where you're supposed to be. Do you think Jesus was created for a specific purpose? When he's 12 years old, he was debating people in the temple, it says in Luke 2. Debating people in the temple. They were all amazed. Jesus was, had the brains and, and enough godliness on him at 12 years old to be the Messiah. Wouldn't that have been cool to be the Messiah, the child Messiah? Seems like it would have been more miraculous. But it says he went home, submitted to his parents, grew in favor with man and with God, and at 30 years old was released into ministry. His process took 18 years from 12 to 30. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. Let me say it again. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. And his ministry rocked the world because he ended up being who God created him to be and he didn't jump out of the boat early and try to do it without God's support. So you got choices to make. Concluding that we can only be who we can be. We can only be you. You can only be you but you can be the best you. You have to answer first to the invitation of God. Some of you have never done that. You've really never come to know the Lord. And he wants you to. Some of you know the Lord, but you won't sit still. You won't rest in the process. You won't grow in God because you won't rest in the process. You won't sit at his feet like, Martha, like Mary did. You're too busy being a Martha. You know, I don't have time to sit at Jesus' feet. I'm busy. Yeah, yeah, you got time because it's the one thing in life that's important, said Jesus. And it doesn't need to be taken away from Mary. But you have to sit at Jesus' feet. You have to choose to do the best things for yourself. And then you have to walk in humility with others. If we do those things, we will grow. And we will begin to emerge into the person that God created us to be. And I hope that's what you want. Just like that's what I want. Amen. I don't want to hold myself to any other standard. You know, don't ever let your spouse tell you, you know, like, don't ever find yourself telling your spouse, I wish you were more like so-and-so, or 
I wish you were more like so-and-so, you know, or her husband, he's not so lazy, or her husband, he's, not, he's more physically fit, whatever. Don't ever use the comparison tool to motivate someone to change. That is the most damaging thing a person can do. I'm not held in a standard as a husband against any other husband. I'm me with Wendy, and the standard is me with Wendy. And when we pull that card out and we start thinking, well, I wish she was more like this one, you're killing your relationship. Because God never does that with you. He never comes to you and says, man, I wish you'd get it together like Daryl. I wish you'd do better like so-and-so. God never does that. God says, I have a plan for you, and it's perfect, and it's good, and I want you to walk in it. And that's what we're doing today. So ministry team, come on up. We're going to minister here. Uh